Are you a current or future physician assistant wanting to learn more about finances? Then join me on this journey to become a PA the FI way. Hi, my name is Kat and I'm a practicing certified physician assistant who will be your host. It took me five years after I started practicing medicine as a PA to thoroughly dive into my personal finances after I discovered the concept of financial independence. I want to use what I have learned to help you avoid some of the financial mistakes that I have made while sharing some of the financial wins that I have had along the way. Join me as we discuss financial strategies to guide you to becoming a physician assistant on the way to financial independence. Welcome back, current and future PAs, to the PA the FI Way podcast, your guide to becoming a physician assistant on the way to financial independence. I'm your host, Kat, and I hope you are all having a wonderful week and that you had a great Father's Day this past weekend. On today's show, I actually have a newer dad, Justin Chittister. He's a CFP AFC. Justin, tell us what all of those letters mean behind your name and a bit about yourself and how has fatherhood been treating you? Sure, Kat. Happy to be here. Um, really excited for our conversation today. I've been looking forward to it all of last week. Uh, the nutters behind my name. I think a lot of people have seen that CFP one before. That stands for Certified Financial Planner. That's a, a designation that about 25% of all people that fall under the financial advisor hood, you might say, have that designation. So it's a minority of that in the first place. Then the AFC is a, is a lesser known one. It stands for Accredited Financial Counselor. It's uh, maybe lesser known, but the AFC professionals have more formal training around uh, client communications and empathetic listening. Okay, interesting. They have more training around budgeting and debt management, credit building, and home mortgages, which surprisingly are not standard curriculum topics in CFP training. Sure. Uh, a lot of CFP is really driven toward maybe serving high income and net worth clients. It's very insurance, retirement, and investment focused. But I think between the two, you're really able to serve the, the entire life stage and then a large variety of clients on the income scale. So those are what those, uh, those gobbledygook of letters behind my name are. But uh, yeah, you mentioned I, I'm a new father. My, my wife and I had a little girl about three months ago. Cool. And uh, it's just been a it's been a ride enjoying it very much. I never thought so much happiness and fatigue would come in tandem before. <laughs> sure. <laughs> cool. Well, I don't have kiddos myself, but I have nieces and nephews and it looks like a lot of work, but it looks like a lot of joy. So, yeah, very for cool. Sure, for sure. And we, we, we spent a lot of time in that favorite aunt and uncle stage ourselves. And yeah, happy to pass into parenthood now. Very cool. All right. So tell us a bit kind of about you. Where are you from and how did you decide to become a fee-only fiduciary certified financial planner? Yeah, you, you bet. In a nutshell, I, uh, I'm, I grew up in a suburb outside the Salt Lake City area here in Utah. I ended up going to college at Utah State University, which is in a college town called Logan, about an hour and a half north of there. And uh, when I first went to school, my thought was... I think I'm going to become a counselor or a therapist. I'm actually in a family sure. full of them. My grandfather was a marriage counselor for several decades, and a few of his sons, my, my father's brothers, followed suit and work in the world of counseling or social work. And I'd heard their stories about helping people, and I thought, I think I'm really going to be fulfilled following a similar path. And at Utah State University, 
the undergraduate degree that leads you toward like a, an MFT program was housed in the same department as a family finance program. Okay. And I was actually obligated to take a, a course that, that blended uh, some of that with, with family finances. And that really tickled my fancy, caught my attention. And I thought, I wonder if there's a setting where I can work one-on-one with people, but about money. And that just took me on a track where I completed a couple programs uh, in personal finance. One was in that consumer science family studies department. The other program was a CFP program in the business school. And at first I worked actually for a few years in the nonprofit side of personal finance. So I worked at a, a nonprofit agency in the community where I was helping people rehabilitate essentially financially from the effects of the recession, oh, which wow. is now 13, 13 years ago. But even, you know, four or five years after that, some people were still recovering from bankruptcies, foreclosures, job loss. They were starting over completely financially from what happened to them. And we would uh, work with them for one or two years uh, via some grants from from financial institutions um, to to help our community members you know, build their credit savings, get back on track, give them education and hopefully help them qualify to become homeowners again. So I did that for a few years, but had always kept my eye on doing my own thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I started some remote work for a, another financial planner and uh, basically had a, had a couple years there where I was phasing out of my nonprofit responsibilities and, and into private practice. And now I've been in private practice as a fee-only financial planner for about five years total and about three years full-time. Okay. Awesome. Very cool. And it looks like on your website that you do tend to try to work with a lot of professionals that work in healthcare. So it sounds like that you've worked with PAs before. So do you mind sharing how you first learned about the PA profession and what your experience has been trying to help PAs with their finances? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I started my practice, I knew a couple things. I knew that I was going to be a lot more interested in working with my peers than with pre-retirees and retirees. And and most of the financial advisory business is very focused on serving those with higher assets and higher net worth who are in the later stages of their career. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I always envisioned if I was going to do my own thing, I I really needed to work with who I would enjoy working with. And I was trying to pay attention to what's what's kind of a segment within my life stage that I'm in where, where I could serve a good purpose and give some specialized advice. And uh, luckily, something I'd had prior training on was the the unique ins and outs of student loans. I actually learned a lot about them when I was in the nonprofit space. But when I combined that with what I knew about financial planning across the life cycle, I realized, man, people who are in these situations where they have to go to these high student loan debt schools to become, you know, any, any kind of med school, law school, dental, chiropractic, physical therapy. I mean, there's a handful of professions out there, unless you're lucky to get full grants or scholarships for school, you're going to be borrowing a lot of money. And that really changes the dynamic of the decisions you have to make. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody else out there can go get some financial education and build some literacy, follow a few financial rules of thumb, but it all kind of becomes more complicated when you walk out of school in your mid twenties, late twenties with six figure student loan debt. And, you know, the way those decisions, you have to balance those against everything else. There's kind of tax and investment decisions that start to get intertwined with how you go about your student loans. And yeah, definitely. what I realized was there was, there was not a lot of advisors who really truly understood that stuff. And I started having, you know, friends of my own that I graduated from high school or college with who were starting to finish 
these high student loan debt schools at the time. I have a few friends that went the PA route. And as we'd have conversations, I realized, number one, when if they if they do end up talking with an advisor, it's not often the, the right kind. Sure. And, you know, maybe we'll talk about that a bit. Yeah. And they're getting advice from people who don't actually understand that student loan piece. So I was already starting to think, hey, maybe I can help people specifically in this space. But I think the turning point and one of the formative experiences is uh, my wife and I have a, a friend, a friend of ours that lives near where we do. And he's a PA at the time is working in a, uh, a small urology clinic. And he just made a remark that that really kind of hit home for me. I remember we were talking about the student loans he had and how before I was able to talk with him, he had several years of just kind of not knowing what to do. He's sort sure. of just guessing at the student loan strategy and hoping it would work out. Yeah. I obviously gave some advice that helped a lot, but he said, man, before I got that advice from you, it kind of just felt like I was burdened by the loans. And I was, I often had times where I second guessed whether I should have done this. Totally. And that just like, that kind of tore me up a little bit because I think at heart, I'm a human services person more than an entrepreneur or a numbers person, to be honest, you know, and, and I realized, wow, a lot of these other people that go into student loan, high student loan professions, that they're like me in the sense that they want to spend their lives servicing and helping other people. Yeah. That's where we kind of, even though I'm not a healthcare professional myself, I feel like that's where we're the same, me and my clients. And to think that someone would second guess their life's purpose because of student loans was like, that just like nod at me. It was really interesting when he said that. I was thinking about it like that night and the next day. It's like, that's really sad that that our friend had second guessed becoming a PA because of how the student loans had affected him for the years after he finished school. And that was kind of my point when I was like, I got to make this my my specialty. And, and that's what I did. Yeah. Well, that's an awesome story. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that it is completely true that by the time you realize how much you have in student loans after grad school... And then you have to figure out how to pay these back that sometimes people can have regrets, you know, because there are so many types of jobs that you really do not need to go into all the student loan debt for, you know, my husband, for example, he didn't go to traditional college, there's lots of different people that can go the trade route or things like that. So it's very tempting Mm -hmm. to consider those other options when you hear all the student loans that PAs can have. But it's really important that people do go into healthcare, obviously. We need that in our country. So I think that it's great that you're able to try to help people formulate plans to pay back their student loans. And I absolutely need to add to what you just said, Kat, because you're right. Like we need our healthcare professionals in this country and a lot of these other student loan professions too, not just PAs. You serve valuable roles in society. And it would be a problem if we didn't have enough healthcare professionals or dentists or physical therapists, you you treat and solve issues of pain yeah. and, and really are important to people. But I, only, I, I sometimes joke with my clients, and, and I only say this half-jokingly, I say, I'm glad that all of you don't look at the student loan piece too, too in-depth before you go to school, because <laughs> right? otherwise you might second-guess and not, not choose to do it. Totally. And yet, you know, and so the economics of it are unfortunate the way they've developed over the last generation, mm-hmm. where the cost is so much higher for you, but the wage levels for your professions actually haven't uh, increased at the same rate. But again, I'm glad that all of you make the sacrifice to still do it anyway. And I know, again, a lot of you don't necessarily maybe realize 
what the student loan piece is going to feel like when you get done. But again, I'm a little glad you don't look into it too hard because it would have discouraged you from doing what you do best. Sure. But it can be done. You know, you can pay back your debt and you can invest. And we're going to talk about all of those things. So don't let the student loans deter you from considering the PA profession, certainly. Exactly. So if some of our listeners do already work with quote unquote financial advisors, what red flags should they look out for to decide if they should go ahead and just fire their financial advisor? Mm, That's a loaded question. A little bit. Um, I think if they're already working with one, here's a couple of things that, that I'd say. Number one, do you absolutely know? Can you explain exactly how your advisor is paid? Totally. That's the first thing. And it's going to actually reveal a lot about who you're really working with. Uh, What I think consumers have to understand is that uh, a large majority of the industry in financial services, financial advice, uh, have major conflicts of interest in how they're compensated. Meaning the advice they're giving you is most likely, in most cases, going to be steered by what's going to make them more money instead of what's actually best for you. Sure. If I could speak to that second level, I think there's been a lot of consumer awareness online about that, trying to teach people about fee-only financial planners, which are advisors that are compensated directly by their clients and by no other method, right? Yeah. Um, They're not selling insurance or selling brokerage products. No commissions. For commission, Mm -hmm. right? No commissions. Um, And so there's this associated term that started to come out that I that I actually really would love to, to talk about. And that's the fiduciary. And you mentioned that at the beginning of totally. all this. So fiduciary, that term, which a lot of you healthcare professionals know because you have a fiduciary oath, essentially, that you take the, the, is the Hippocratic Oath. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Like there's nothing like that that actually exists in financial advice. Based on what environment we advisors work in, we're held to either a standard where we have to advise you in what's in your best interest. That's a fiduciary standard. But most advisors work either in a, a suitability standard, which is what they're held to if they're trying to sell you a product, which, which honestly means nothing in my opinion. When you look into the legalities of it, as long as you can make a loose connection between what you advise someone to do and that it was somewhat suitable for them, even if it's an expensive, crummy product, life insurance or, or investment or something, you're not going to get in trouble. It's really hard to you know, sue for the equivalent of equivalent of malpractice or something. The the nuanced issue that I think consumers need to understand, though, is that those companies have caught on that consumers, especially younger ones, are starting to ask more and more that question when they first meet an advisor: Are you a fiduciary? And and I'm learning this secondhand from people I talk to. They're training those advisors to now say, "Yes, I'm registered as an investment advisor, and thus I am a fiduciary." Okay. The reality, though, is most advisors now are what are called dual registered. Hmm. Meaning they're registered as an investment advisor where when they're giving investment advice, they're supposedly held to a fiduciary standard, okay. but they're also registered to sell products. Interesting. Be registered in both ways. Sure. And so the problem with that is it becomes very, very uh, convoluted. When are they advising you under that fiduciary standard? When are they advising you under a suitability standard? In fact, it's, it's really not clear, to be honest. I've tried to understand it myself and it's, it's confusing to me. Yeah, certainly. And so it's easy for them to say, yeah, I am a fiduciary. But what they're really not saying is, but I'm not a fiduciary when I'm advising you on insurance or I'm not a fiduciary when I'm advising you on this. So how are you really supposed to know? And so I think the better question is to ask, are you 
fee only. And are you a fiduciary 100% of the time? Because what's happening is a lot of that world is now being trained to basically dodge that Mm -hmm. question in a way that the consumer says, oh, cool. And and it's amazing. I've even seen, you know, I know how to tell um, when I look at advisor's website, how they're, what kind of advisor practice they are. And I've seen they put all kinds of language about, yeah, we do what's in your best interest, but that's not legally actually how they're registered to practice. So you just got to be real careful about that. Sure. Sure. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I think like you said, asking if people are fiduciary 100% or in all aspects, you know, how they proceed in all of their aspects with helping you. And I will just briefly share my story. I know I've shared on past episodes, but just in case there are some new listeners here, why I was really excited when one of Justin's team members reached out to me was the fact that I did work with a quote-unquote financial advisor right out of PA school, and unfortunately, he was not fiduciary nor fee-only back in the day. So my husband and I had a poor experience, and I'll just briefly share this. Again, I know I've shared it before, but during rotations in PA school, I met one of my preceptors, and she was a PA who was about two years ahead of me, so two years practicing already, and she was talking about meeting with her financial advisor. And I thought at the time, oh, I mean, I need, I feel like I need that. You know, I, I don't feel like we are taught very much financial literacy. And I felt like I had an astronomical student loan amount and I wanted a plan to try to pay it back. And I knew that investing was probably good, but didn't know exactly how to do that. And then my husband and I were getting married shortly after PA school. So it seemed like a very good time to try to work with somebody in the financial industry to try to get our finances together and on board and having a plan moving forward. So we met with him and, you know, he treated us to coffee and things like that. And so that was really nice. And we're trying to figure out how he gets paid. And he says, well, it's essentially if your investments do well, then I get paid. So we're like, okay, whatever that means, you know. And we met with him for I believe it was about six years when we finally ended that relationship. And it was difficult because he was really nice, right? And he always follows up with you and every quarter tries to reach out just to kind of touch base and see how things are going. But he also advised back at the time, don't be in such a rush to pay off those student loans. You are able to take some of those amounts that you're paying and it can help lower your taxes. But that's only up until a certain income amount, which was not mentioned at the time. So we were not in a big hurry to pay off those student loans, unfortunately. And instead, he sold us whole life insurance, which as two young married individuals without kiddos, we probably did not need at the time. Very few people probably need that, especially in the place that we were in. So with that whole life insurance, he talks about, you know, investing within it and all those types of things. But unfortunately, those are horrible investments. You know, they're They certainly don't earn very much, and it's essentially kind of a waste, frankly. So it was just poor financial advice for several years. And by the time I learned about financial independence a couple of years ago and started researching and reading more about this and getting into this, that's where it was like, okay, we just need to end this. And we finally did, and it's been great ever since. So, yeah. Well, that was helpful for me to hear that story. And Kat, it, that exact experience that you and your husband had is something that happens to so many people out there. And uh, I, I actually have one client. She's a, 
she's a nurse practitioner and she and her husband were given almost identical situation to yours. And where I actually entered the picture was they had been convinced to stop contributing to their 401ks 10 years earlier oh, no. and put it all into full, whole life insurance instead. Oh. And they they kind of became aware of what had happened and they were had already made their decision to leave their advisor. And But in that first meeting, they said, we need to hear just for our own closure. We need you to tell us how much we'd probably have if we, number one, I guess, how much have we put in in premiums and how much is the cash value now? After all the talk a decade ago of what a great investment that would be. And then I need you to tell us, they said, how much we'd probably have in our 401ks if we had not stopped contributing there. And number one, on their whole life insurance policies, they had put in 40,000 in premiums. And this was a decade later, their cash value was about at 40,000. So I said, congrats, you yeah. haven't lost anything, but <laughs> yep. you haven't made anything nope. either. After and a decade, said, oh man. Then, yeah, it was bad. Or maybe it was nine years, but pretty much a decade. And, and uh, then I did a, a rough back test of if they had just continued to contribute to their 401ks. And, you know, the difference was, was something like 75,000, right? Wow. In, in, the, the growth they would have been having. So it, it happens all the time. Yeah. And uh, so so you just have to be very aware of who you're talking to. And to go back to your question, if you're already working as an advisor and, and now you're realizing, realizing I'm not, not sure exactly what kind of advisor they are, think back to your first experience with them. I think there's context clues in Cat Story that actually can teach you really well. Sure. Were they really buttering you up? Mm-hmm. Were they, were, did they, you know, they know they're super nice. And, and maybe this is a good opportunity to say that a lot of people who practice in that space, they don't, this, I know it sounds crazy, but a lot of them don't realize that they're not doing what's in your best interest. They actually get a job and they get trained and they just kind of trust and believe the company they're working yeah. for. So yes, there's the sharks out there that don't care what advice they're giving people. They're looking to make as much money as possible. I do find the majority of the time though, they're uh, unfortunately kind of like a victim of the system in a, in a weird way. Yeah. They're just really hyped up and, and excited to, to make money yeah. and they're told that they're changing lives and giving good advice and they actually just don't know any difference. Yeah. It's all they've ever been trained on. So so know that. But the, the other thing I just say, how else can you know, to go back to your question, Kat, how else can you know or what are some red flags? Um, did they give advice in the very first meeting? I think is actually an interesting one. That's a really good indicator that they're not looking to truly look at your situation and, and figure out what's best. They're just trying to get to an end result of, of selling you something. Yeah, certainly. So if the advice is, if people, if they have an initial consultation with me, it is not to give advice. There's no way I feel like I can give good advice Makes without sense. really scoping through someone's situation first. So to me, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's just, there's so many healthcare analogies you can pull here. How can you truly tell someone or diagnose something if you don't thoroughly look at them first? Sure. Right. Or ask your history. Yeah. Or ask for your history. Exactly. Exactly. Totally. That's great. Yeah, I have to believe that many of them who are financial advisors really do not necessarily feel like they're just trying to earn all this commission and get all your money. I really think that they are trying to help you. So it's just concerning that unfortunately, there's so many out there that can take advantage of people. And that probably is mostly unknowingly, but it can have a huge opportunity cost as as you portrayed with that story that you shared. So thank you for sharing that. Exactly. You bet. Yeah. So much of what is discussed on this podcast, as well as my website, pathefiway.com, encourages PAs to become financially literate so they can feel as though they're able to pay off their debt and save and invest for themselves. However, some may decide that they really would rather work with a professional like yourself 
to help them formulate and implement a financial plan or provide more guidance for them. So what do you think are some of the benefits that you can provide for current and future PAs? Yeah, you for sure. I, I really love your, your mission statement there because I, I too believe in giving someone education and literacy and empowering them. So if they can figure it out for themselves from there, nothing makes me happier. And, and I, a lot of advisors don't work this way, but I have services that are intended to be one-time services. And when we say one-time, we don't mean literally one meeting and then you're done. We might take a few meetings over the course of a, a couple months to flesh through your situation, take a lot of time with you, teach you a lot, come to good, thorough conclusions about the best thing for you to do with your student loans or your 401k or your, your employer benefits. But we give you a bunch of action items and supporting commentary, and then you try to go follow that on your own. So I, I'm, I'm with you there. With my own life, I kind of like to see if I can take a stab at it and figure stuff out on my own too. But the next iteration of that is sometimes we, sometimes I think we, we I think we can all look at ourselves and say, yeah, I kind of overestimate my, my confidence in being able to not only learn something, but to follow through and, and do it when I'm supposed to. Sure. So I find that, you know, some people, for example, they have a lot of natural ability around, I don't know, their car repairs. So they try to do the minor stuff on their own, but when it exceeds a certain point where they don't either have the time the knowledge, or maybe the equipment to properly assess or fix their, what their problem is, that's when they go to mechanic, right? I would argue that unless you are a complete spreadsheet master, for example, and you know tax law really well, sure. and you know time value of money and you know all these other things, you, you don't have the equipment or the, the type of calculators or systems, professional grade software to maybe thoroughly assess what you should do sure, that's great. regarding your student loans, right? And so- um, you can learn a lot, but until you look at the numbers yourself, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to say that you'd come to the same quality of a decision that, that a professional might be able to advise you on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. And I think too, that it can help to have somebody there to keep you on track and follow up, make sure that you're implementing the plan. Otherwise it can be so easy to just postpone all of those things because they can take a lot of time to go through checking on, you know, your financial advisor, checking on whether you want to get term life insurance or disability insurance or all of those types of things. So it takes time to implement those tasks. So it can be a useful tool to have somebody to keep you accountable. Yeah. And I'm glad you are willing to acknowledge and appreciate that aspect. In fact, I often tell my clients once we start working with them a little bit more, most people come in for the come in for our services for the knowledge piece, meaning they feel like they've learned some, but they're, they need that technical proficiency to find out what to do. But the reason people stay is because of the accountability and the support sure. I've noticed. So, you know, it's the same reason people hire a personal trainer. Mm-hmm. It's not because a personal trainer has truly secret knowledge that the rest of us don't have access to. Yeah. Right. Like if you are a personal trainer, they're going to you can meet them at the same gym you can go to on your own. They're going to have you use the same weight machines and treadmill that you could use on your own, whatever it is. And they're probably going to go tell you to buy a certain protein powder that you can go buy on your own too. But as soon as you formalize that area of your life, like your physical health into a system with another person that helps manage that and, and helps you to stay on track, the end result, the, or I guess the end consequence is better results. And so to kind of tie that in with the whole DIY piece, right? Like if someone can DIY something and do it well, great. Maybe there's an aspect of it that you just 
like doing it on your own. And that's, that's really something that's fulfilling for you. But I think everybody does need to look at themselves and say, is it more important for me to get results or to do it by myself? Like what's really important to me in the end? And I'm not trying to imply that there's a right or wrong to that. Truly, some people, what life is all about for them is that that ride of trying stuff on their own. And even if sometimes they, they make mistakes and it doesn't go exactly right, they're fine with that because that's how they want to do it. Yeah. But a lot of us who think we're really pure DIYers, I think sometimes aren't once we get into it. And sometimes we feel that pressure that we're supposed to because, and you know, the whole blog podcast community, not just in personal finance, but in all sorts of topics is kind of like this, right? It's about empowering the individual to go do it on your own because we're, we're in the age of the internet and all the information is out there. Yeah. So just do it by yourself, but you can't just, you just can't do that with everything. So you've got to figure out what's worth delegating or outsourcing or, or partnering with so that you can assure results instead of just trying to retain the, I can do this on my own mentality. Yeah, definitely. That's great. Awesome. So most PAs graduate with six figures of student loan debt, though they can also often start earning six figures out of PA school. What do you think are the best ways to target high-figure student loans immediately out of grad school? Yeah, the number one decision you've got to make, to be honest, is am I going to is my goal to pay these off in full or is it not? And is it to pursue forgiveness? Those are the two extreme ends of the spectrum, believe it or not, and how we approach an analysis for people. And we don't have a standard decision or advice we give on that. It's truly every case. We look at the numbers. We look at the person's life. We, we talk to them about it. And together, we mutually agree upon what's the best course of action to follow. But yeah, um, it just depends. Really, the, the number one thing to speak to that is what's the ratio of your debt you come out of school with mm-hmm. to your income? Sure. Both your starting and maybe projected income path too. And if if that ratio is... 1.25 or more. And that's a rough figure. Some some of us advisors in this space look at maybe one and a half, meaning let's say you, you get done with school, you're a new PA, you're making, you know, 100,000, but your student loan debt is 150,000. Mm-hmm. That would be a one and a half ratio, right? 1.5 ratio yeah. of debt to income. The higher that ratio is, the more likely there's a, there's a good numerical argument for you to plan on forgiveness long-term because if you just spend all the initial years of your life trying to pay off that huge student loan debt, you're going to lose the ability to save and invest enough money instead. Mm -hmm. And the biggest component in time value money is, is time, right? Mm -hmm. Like you already start your career later than most people because of more schooling. So you've lost some years already. If you then take 10 more years before you start investing anything, Really, there's a, you, you run a lot of life cycle projections about how much you need to save and invest for retirement, and you may not be able to ever catch up. Now, that's a very big decision. So we don't hastily come to that conclusion. I like some of the philosophy that you've taught people, Kat, about, I think my, my most favorite one that, that I've seen you teach is live, continue to live like a resident sure. two, to, two to five years after residency. Yeah. If you feel like you can swing that, such a good path to follow. And especially if that accelerates your ability to actually pay off all your student loans in that time frame, like do it. Sure. But the second you think you might not be able to swing that, and there's all kinds of factors. By the way, if anyone's listening to this and you feel like, wow, there's all these stories out there online of people just really buckling down and continue to live 100% like a resident and pay off all their student loans, 
you may feel the pressure to do that. That's a good positive form of peer pressure. Trust me, I, I like the invitation to try to do that. But, you know, you may have a spouse that's not a PA that doesn't have a lot of student loan debt, and they may just feel like that's, you know, you got to respect their opinion too, right? Totally. They didn't maybe realize they were going to marry so much debt. And you have to honor the, the you know, in that, that situation, you have to honor the wishes of, I think, both spouses or partners. So there's factors like that can come into play. If you think you might take more than five years to pay it off, or, and again, the higher you think it's going to take to pay off, the more and more you need to investigate, is there actually a good balanced plan to maybe going for PSLF or long-term forgiveness where we can still save and invest a lot of money early on? And, and the like, even if we pay a little bit more interest on our student loans in the end, we're probably going to make more wealth in the long run than we will have paid an extra interest on our student loans. To me, that there's, there, there are many balanced decisions along that spectrum that, that you can make. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I certainly can't take credit for the phrase live like a resident. That's actually from Dr. Dolly from the White Coat Investor who advises that for physicians. So I will say, you know, try to live like a PA student if you're able to for about two to five years. But I think he has excellent advice as well. So that's great for sure. But like you said, you can have different strategies, so to speak, of paying off your loans. So I just did an Instagram live with Kristen Burton from Strive with Kristen. And she paid $161,000 worth of student loan debt off in 16 months. So she was working like crazy. I think she had four or five jobs out of PA school, working 80 hours a week, I think on average, for those 16 months. So she buckled down, was hardcore, you know, paying off her debt, right? So there's that end of the spectrum. Or like you said, there are some things that you can do to try to get forgiveness. So PSLF could potentially be an option. It's kind of a difficult program because there's a lot of people that apply for it and don't always get it. But I think also as a PA too, as as a new PA, it depends upon what type of jobs you think you're able to get or do get because some areas of the country, it can be harder to get your dream job right away, right? So you may end up in a specialty that was the only one hiring at that time. And it might not be at a site that you could do PSLF. So every situation for each new PA is completely different. And so, like you said, I think it's important to evaluate what your goals are, but also see what your situation is at that time, because you may or may not be able to find a job right out of PA school that you can qualify for public student loan forgiveness, but it's possible. Everyone's so different, or you could potentially change jobs in the future. So, Absolutely. And if I could speak to, to that, I think one thing... Yeah, on that note, you, you don't always know, again, exactly how your career is going to play out over the next 10, 15 years. You know what your income might be right out of school, but you don't know how that might change or how your employer might change. And so even if you you get the you get the hunch that long term, you're probably going to try to maybe refinance your loans to a lower rate and just pay them off in full. Even if that seems to be the most likely scenario, we often advise our clients to still just stay on an IDR plan for the first couple of years to see how things play out. Because what if you do change employers two years in and it's a nonprofit qualifying employer, but if you already decided to just refinance everything out of the federal side into private, there's no going back once you do that, right? And so I think until you kind of have a better idea of how things are going to play out long term, don't be too hasty to take things out of the federal system. Yes, I know it's tempting, especially right now to see how low interest rates are in the private student loan world. 
and you think, ah, I'm going to, I'm going to miss out on that. But honestly, it'll be a bigger financial mistake if you end up switching to a nonprofit or maybe you lose your job and have to go somewhere else that's lower paying. In fact, we had a PA client last year, worked at a small clinic. The owner of the clinic found out he had stage four pancreatic cancer and they shut down the clinic oh, in less than a month. That's awful. And he had to go find, yeah, it was, it was super hard, but the PAs all had to go find jobs. A couple of them went to lower paying places. And so, mm. you know, you just, you just got to wait until you feel real secure. I think before you refinance and go to the, the private side, just for that screaming low interest rate. Sure. Make sure you recognize what you're giving up. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then throughout the different episodes, I've tried to illustrate the importance of investing to build wealth on my listeners' journeys to financial independence, as you really can't just save your way to wealth. Many newly graduated PAs, as well as experienced PAs just learning about financial independence, struggle with wanting to invest but are still paying off a large amount of student loan debt. How do you think PAs can invest for retirement while paying off their student loan debt? Again, that's a, a very personal and, and customized decision for, for each individual. I think some of the most obvious answers uh, ring true here. I don't have special advice on this. Never leave free money on the table. If you have a 401k plan, make sure you contribute up to a company match. I think another thing that I've seen a trend toward, and this definitely depends on if you work for a smaller or large employer, but HSA matches yep. are becoming more and more common. Yeah, those are great. Uh, sometimes they're, yeah, sometimes they're a match and sometimes they're just a, a flat contribution mm-hmm. just from the employer on an annual basis. And so make sure you take that into account when you're choosing between a, a traditional plan or a high deductible plan. You're looking at the difference in the premiums, but a lot of times if you take into account the extra 500 or $1,000 the employer is going to put into the HSA for you, that's probably more than the, the cost savings that you're experiencing picking between the two plans. So those are the first two areas. And, and HSAs, actually, I think a lot of people view them as a short-term vehicle for paying for medical expenses. But if you dig into things a little bit, they may, they may just be the best retirement account. For sure. They're triple tax totally. advantaged. And I think, I think you've covered that before with your listeners. So those are the two first two places I think I would invite people to do is maybe do the 401k up to the company match and consider maxing out your HSA and, or at least getting a certain amount in there as a matching schedule on that. And then from there you can address kind of your, should I invest or, or pay off debt? And again, I think you really got to take into account a lot of variables before you decide which way you're going to go, but whichever one you choose, like go all in on that. Don't like switch every year to like, Oh no, maybe I'm going to save and invest more oh no, maybe I'm going to pay off debt faster. I think what I've realized and a lot of professionals in my space have realized it too is it, once once you know what your strategy is, whether it's quick payoff or long-term, stick with it. Because if you, if you hesitate and you switch back and forth, you actually don't get the best results of either of those decisions. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you for that. So we've covered some services that you can offer for current and future PAs, such as trying to help provide some specified student loan payback guidance. You can talk with them about how to start investing out of PA school or if they are experienced PAs. What are some other services that you feel like current and future PAs could benefit from working with you? Yeah, so I I do have like a, a small service called a student loan plan service where I'll have a two meeting 
engagement with uh, an individual or a couple to, to fully investigate their student loan situation and let them see the numbers. In a lot of ways, I feel more like a, a guide than an advisor. I think my style is not to be like the authoritarian. Listen, you'd be really dumb if you don't follow my <laughs> advice and, and choose this route. Sure. You know, I think I think when I properly teach and show the numbers and show scenario one versus scenario two versus scenario three, I find that almost all of our clients feel like they have clarity and, and then feel empowered to make the decision that they feel most comfortable with. So that's what we do in the student loan plan. We look at what if you private refinance? What if you stay on an IDR plan for a couple of years and then go to private refinance? What if you stay in an IDR plan long-term and shoot for PSLF for long-term forgiveness? And what if we do some tax planning to lower your income on paper so that your student loan payments stay lower over time? And what does the, what's the total amount paid under every scenario? And what do you feel comfortable with, Mr. or Mrs. Client? Because every person has a little bit different uh, risk tolerance for debt or maybe debt preference or debt tolerance. And I think you really need to take that into account. Not Don't just look at the numbers. The quantitative side is so important in financial planning, but the qualitative side and the individual and what they feel comfortable with is maybe just as important. And I that's what the client has to bring to the table, right? Yeah. So we have that we have that service, and I think, I, of course, I'm biased on this, but I think anybody coming out with a large amount of student loan debt uh, has so much clarity after we do a service like that. And and you know the most common remark is 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 a is just like a thank you and thanks for taking the time to go through all of that. So I I just feel better about what I'm planning to do with my student loans now. And, and sometimes that's all we end up doing for people. And that's yeah. great. Sometimes they want more advice from there or they, they come back later when they feel ready. But the, the the other services that we do is if they, through that experience, realize, hey, there's a lot there's a lot more financial advice I feel like I can get, then we can do a, a full financial plan service, which is four meetings over a couple months to just do that same thing, but for every area of their life, right? Yeah. Their savings strategy, their investment portfolios for their 401k or other accounts, tell them exactly how to invest if they want to do it on their own, uh, stick them into a, an automated investment platform or a robo-advisor if they want to do it with us. We just basically have them sign up for the robo-advisor and then give us permission to, to run the stuff there for them. And uh, so people can continue on going or they can just stop and come back later. It's just whatever's best for them is, is how we want to want to do things. Sure. That's great. Sounds like there's lots of different options that are out there to try to get your help. So that's awesome. So I believe and hope that a lot of my listeners are trying to pursue financial independence. And I'm suspecting that some of them may consider the RE part of FIRE, retire early. Have you worked with many clients that have tried to retire early and about planning for withdrawing their retirement and how to do so? Yeah, I have. There is, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's the majority of my client base that's really hellbent and excited on I'm going to retire at 40 and go live on a beach sort of thing, <laughs> which I think a lot of the early retirement folks are are really into. I, I Because my clientele are about 27 to 35 years old and five years or less out of school, I don't have any clients that have, we might say, declared financial independence yet, but we'd certainly have a, a portion of them that are shooting for that. And I like the emphasis more on financial independence than retire early. And, and for me, that's because I'm finding that it seems like most people want some form of phased mm -hmm. retirement, not a work full-time, work full-time, work full-time, stop yep. one day. 
but they just want the autonomy to scale back on hours, maybe move to a place that is lower cost of living or close to where they grew up and they can swing it being, you know, working for a lower income. Uh, so, so not very many of, of my clients, I would say are, are shooting for that. A couple of them are, but more of them we actually have planned in their projections in their financial plan, you know, cut, cut back on hours in their mid forties and work the last 10 to 20 years working less hours or for some of them, honestly, they think they just want to move to a hobby career. So it's not even the healthcare space anymore, but they're going to jump to something that they enjoy or something they can do together with their spouse. And we've identified as long as you can make X amount a year doing that and not touch whatever investments you've saved up up to that point and let that just keep compounding for full retirement, which might happen more like, you know, your sixties, the conventional age you know, you're, you're going to be fine. The numbers look good. And so, yeah, we, we definitely have people, but I like to ask people, you know, just what, what does financial independence mean to you? Sure. And I give them some ideas about clients and, and how, how they go about it differently. And people are usually able to say, oh yeah, that style sounds, sounds more like me because maybe they've never really like articulated sure. it. So that, like, giving them a few examples of what people are shooting for helps them a lot. Yeah, exactly. That's wonderful. I think that it is very important to emphasize that financial independence is a point that you have to reach to retire, even in traditional retirement age, right? So everyone needs to be pursuing financial independence. So it's up to you whether you want to pursue the retire early part, or as you mentioned, dial back on your work or pursue other hobbies or interests or spending more time with your family or friends too. Uh, that's, that's well said. I like the way that you said that. We do all have to be FI at some point, right? Yeah, it's just why would you pursue it in your own style and on your own terms? Because for generations now, there's been this very locked in single definition of what that is. And that's work as long as you possibly can. If you haven't been paying attention, you probably haven't saved enough. And then hopefully you can get by on your Social Security or whatnot. Right. And I think our generation is is sort of changing the, the narrative a bit and, you know, be intentional about how you go about that timeline. Definitely. And uh that's, that's really what it's all about. Yeah, it's important to think about what you want your life to look like, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Justin, I sincerely want to thank you so much for taking the time to join me as a guest on today's episode. I think it's incredibly important for PAs to learn about CFPs who could provide extra help and guidance if that's what they desire. If they would like to learn more or connect with you, how could they do so? My website is www.wealth-mode.com. I'm very transparent. Uh, everything is on my website, the services, how they work, the pricing. That being said, if you, if you like, if people like what they see on there, they, they can just follow one of the links to schedule a, an intro call and we just go from there. And a promise that I just, I give to anybody that ever hears my voice or sees something that I've written is that my, my intro calls are not sales pitches. My style is actually that I don't ask for business. I don't feel like I, I need to. I just tell people what I do. We find out more about their situation, give them an appropriate quote for, you know, here's what this service would cost for you. Here's what this service would cost for you and tell them their options. And then when they want to do it, they get back to us, whether that's the next week or the next month or the next year. And we'll just have a a very authentic and comfortable conversation is what I like to tell people. That's great. That sounds wonderful. So to the listeners, if you've received value out of this episode, please consider rating the podcast and leaving a written review, subscribing to the show for future episodes, and share it with your PA colleagues or classmates. 
If you were able to do so, it would be thoroughly appreciated as it would help other PAs find this information about how to be a PA the FI way. Thanks so much for tuning in to the episode today. And thank you so much, Justin. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Kat. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope that you decide to continue to join me along this journey of becoming a PA the FI way. Please take a moment to press the subscribe button on the platform that you are listening to this on, but more importantly, consider sharing with another current or future PA that could benefit from the information that we reviewed in this episode. Take care and have a great rest of your day. Until next time.